Okay, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 24 through, 20, uh, through 29. Um, the title of the sermon today is The Rock, Mankind's Foundation and Authority. Matthew 7, 24 through 29. The key words for our worshipers in training are house, flood, and fool. I'm very excited to be able to preach this morning. It's the first time this year, so I'm very excited. Um, it's amazing how much good advice is out there in the world if we're, if we're listening and paying attention, right? But the key to good advice is what? Is putting the advice into practice. So good advice is only, real. it's really only good if we follow it. Otherwise, it's pretty useless. Uh, advice can sometimes come as warnings, right? Um, and the following warnings were found on some consumer products. So I want to get your juices flowing, you know, get you thinking about advice and warnings. On a Duraflame fireplace log, you know those things you put in the fireplace when you're too lazy, like me, to do it the right way? There's a warning on it. It says, caution, risk of fire, Okay. On a Batman costume, you could find an advice, a warning that says, Warning, cape does not enable the user to fly. So remember that when you're buying a Batman costume. On a bottle of hair coloring, there's a warning, do not use as an ice cream topping. So please remember that. On a cardboard sunshield for a car, do not drive with the sunshield in place. Okay, very important. Unless you are Batman or, no, it would be Superman with x-ray vision. And lastly, and my favorite for all of our, we have a lot of young families with new babies. On a portable stroller, there's a caution. Remove infant before folding for storage. Okay, so please remember that. So someone has said that being able to identify wise ideas is important. It's even more important to put those ideas into practice. This separates the fool from the philosopher, the simpleton from the sage. So this morning we're going to look at something that is much greater. We have the great privilege and honor and the blessing of looking at something that is much greater than mere advice. But what we're going to talk about today is a foundational teaching and a serious warning from Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord, which we confess this morning. Our text comes at the end of a very extended sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in the world. It's the sermon that Jesus gave in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And what he's talking about, what Jesus is talking about, is what it looks like to be a member of God's kingdom on earth. And there's a lot involved in that. There's a whole lot. There's, There's things like the blessedness of following Christ, the Beatitudes, the blessing, the happiness that it comes from following Christ. There's what we talked about a while back, being salt and light on earth is what Jesus talks about, being salt and light on this earth right now. There's the fulfillment and reestablishment of God's eternal law and the importance of God's law. Jesus talks to us about anger, about lust, divorce, Oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. 
giving to the needy. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. He talks about our attitude towards our possessions. He talks about anxiety, judging others, about asking God for gifts, and how to fundamentally treat other people. So these are a lot, these are a lot of the things that Jesus has talked about. And after this kingdom living narrative, in verse 13 of chapter 7, Jesus gives us four short sketches that emphasizes that Jesus is just not satisfied with giving us some good advice. He's just not satisfied with us reading this warning label. But he, it's not something that he wants us to maybe, you know, go think about it. You know, don't, it's not that big a deal. Go, go at your leisure and, you know, if you have time, think about it. No, Jesus is looking for a response. He's looking for a response to his teaching. And to add even more emphasis He's telling us what the consequences will be of failing to responding to his words, especially his words in chapter 4, verse 17, which said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within your reach. It's in your midst. So repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So each of these sketches in Matthew 7 gives us a very clear contrast between right, a right or good response and the wrong or the bad response, between the true and between the false, between the saved, ultimately, and the lost. So in each of these four sketches, the results of failing to respond to Jesus rightly are seen as catastrophic. In verse 13, it brings about your destruction if you fail to respond rightly. In verse 14, 19, it says, all those who fail to respond rightly will be cut down and burned. In verse 21 and 23, he says, you will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 27, which we'll talk about this morning, it brings about the total and utter devastating collapse of your entire house. So we have a very simple but demanding choice because the choice is demanding because it carries eternal consequences. It's not like the advice I read before where, you know, those are things that might hurt you in the here and now. But Jesus is saying, refusing to follow this advice, this wisdom, will bring eternal consequences. So the question that I'm going to lay out for you and for me is, will we listen to God and ignore him? Or are we going to follow him and put his word into practice? So let's look at Matthew seven twenty four through 29. Matthew writing under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
So the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus does not use the words that a normal prophet would use. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, right? He doesn't say that. It is Jesus himself who is giving his hearers the choice. These are his, his words which must be done. No mere prophet would raise his words to the level of God's. To do Jesus' words here is the equivalent of what he said in verse 21, doing the will of my Father in heaven. So to ignore Jesus' words here or elsewhere will result in total spiritual disaster for anyone. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. So both of the men represented here in this parable have heard the words of Jesus. Both are builders, as are all of us, because to live your life means to build a house. The analogy here is that's it. To live your life is to build a house. So every ambition, every desire that you have, every idea or thought that's conceived in your mind, every word that you speak, every action that you do is a building block of the house that is your life. And none of these things are hanging in midair, or at least they shouldn't be. That's the basis of our Christian apologetic. If we step back and look at the big picture, Jesus is telling us that only the Christian worldview provides a foundation and a justification for life. Now, I don't have time to get into details of that today, but every time I preach, it's like an infomercial for my apologetics class. But, you know, if you take that, you'll you'll understand completely. But... So as a house strength comes from its foundation and the strength of each progressive layer, so are our lives built on a foundation for our thoughts, ideas, actions to rest upon and gain support and gain strength from. So gradually over time, the structures of our lives rise and are built up. But we see here that not all builders are the same. However, some are wise And some are foolish. So the sensible or the wise man builds his house on the rock. And the foolish man builds his house on the sand. I want to note and make sure you understand how important it is that there are only two types of builders, right? Not three, not four or five or many, but there's two types of builders. And these two builders could not have picked more opposite structures to build their houses on that of the rock, and that of the sand. So one is hard, dense, heavy, immovable, sturdy. That's the rock, right? The other is soft, light, porous, and very movable. Jesus constantly divides people into two and only two categories. Just a brief, a brief look at that. In Matthew, just in Matthew only, in Matthew six twenty two through 23, Jesus says that you cannot serve two masters, not three or four, but two. In, verse, in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he says there's two types of people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those who go through the narrow road and those who go through the wide road. In chapter 10, verse 39, he says there are those who find their lives and those who lose their lives. In chapter 13, he says, There are those whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and those who it has not been given to. 
And also, in that same chapter, he says, there are those with open eyes and ears and those with closed eyes and ears. He says there are wheats and there are weeds. He says there are evil and there are righteous in verses 47 through 50. In chapter 25, he says there are wise and foolish virgins. And these are just a few and only in Matthew. My favorite is in Matthew 12, 30, where he says, whoever is not with me is against me. So these are always two types of people that Jesus is talking about. But even though these two builders are different, they have different foundations, they do have common, they do have something in common. I was going to say common ground. That doesn't really, that doesn't really sound like right. They do have something in common. Each is what? Each is doing the same thing, right? Each is building a house. The houses in Jesus' day weren't like our houses, right? Most wouldn't stand up against our building codes that we have today. I mean, we can see in the Bible, it tells us that thieves could dig through walls and that holes could be opened up in the earth and grass roofs and people dropped through. So all the more was the importance of the foundation. The foundation was very important when it came to building a house. Both also built their houses in similar locations, right? Places that were normally dry, and there normally wasn't a problem, you know? Yeah, this looks like a good place for a house. It's nice and dry and flat, but, but with rapid and heavy rainfall, the wind and water would beat down on both houses, But the similarities end, don't they? The first builder is wise. He puts thought into his house's location. He thinks ahead to what's going to happen when this dry season ends. And he digs deep to find the rock bottom. He moves gravel. He moves the loose rocks. He moves the sand out of the way. And he gets all the way down to that rock-solid foundation. And that is where he builds his house. Now, chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew reminds us that Jesus isn't just talking to his disciples here. It tells us that a mixed crowd of people were surrounding the disciples, and they were listening to him uh, also as he was talking. So unlike some of his previous parables, this parable does not draw a sharp line between those inside and outside the church. But the distinction here is between those who have heard Jesus' words and follow them and those who have heard Jesus' words and don't follow them. So to be there in the audience of Jesus was no more a guarantee of salvation than to have called him Lord, Lord, and perform miracles in his name. And some of those people were cast away. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Same way, nor is going to church... In our day, a guarantee of salvation or of doing good works. Both then and now, it comes down to believing first and foremost. And then as a result of our believing, we will be doing, doing what Jesus sets down for us in his word. So the alternative to believing and doing, according to this parable, is a total collapse of everything in your life. So the idea of the parable is really, it's a pretty easy one to grasp, right? It's not that difficult. The Jews lived in an area that was very susceptible to these heavy rains, sending flash floods and surging down a normally dry area with very devastating effects. So the type of house is not really what's important here, 
but the condition of the foundation of the house is what is important. And this was not a brand new imagery for the Jews. You know, I don't know if y'all, y'all know, but I, I, I love to show where the New Testament draws from the old. So I want to just show a little bit because these wouldn't be brand new concepts for them, right? They're not starting from scratch. Um, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read about four, four or five verses from Isaiah 28. You can turn there if you want to. Isaiah chapter 28, uh, verses 15 through 19. Now, the prophet Isaiah is denouncing the Jews for making an alliance with Egypt against Assyria. They were scared of Assyria. You know, they were shaking in their boots, probably as they should have been. But instead of trusting in God's deliverance, they went and made an alliance with Egypt when they knew that's not what God wanted them to do. So this is what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 28, verses 15 through 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement, that's with Egypt. When the overwhelming whip, Assyria, passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters, these are the waters representing God's judgment on sin, waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through, and day by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. Also, Ezekiel 13, verses 10 through 16. Again, Uh, Ezekiel's target are false prophets who are proclaiming peace when there's no peace. They're, yeah, everything's fine, everything's good, everything's peaceful, when God's prophets are saying just the opposite. So Ezekiel in chapter 13, verses 10, 10 through 16 says this. He says, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall... These prophets smear it with whitewash. This whitewash is a covering of delusions. It's lies. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord." Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. 
the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. So in both of these prophetic accounts from the Old Testament, we see the importance of a solid rock foundation in Scripture where the building that is made of this material will remain secure and and built on the rock will remain secure against all threats, even against God's very wrath. And the ultimate expression of this, I think, is Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says the very church of God herself will withstand. Jesus tells us that on the rock, Jesus will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancement of his church. So the foolish man does none of this. He builds his house right on the sand without a moment's thought to the consequences. What will happen when the inevitable storm and rain and wind comes along? The foolish man gives no thoughts to that. So Jesus explains in verse 21 that the figurative meaning of the rock is these words of mine. The Sermon on the Mount and every other word that comes from Jesus to include by extension every word inspired by the Spirit of Christ that he left to his people on earth. So Jesus' very words are the rock, these words of mine. Further, since by means of his words he reveals his own heart because Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can safely conclude that as far as the spiritual meaning of the parable is concerned, Jesus himself is the rock. And we can see that. You can write these down in Isaiah 28, 16. We just saw that. Isaiah talks about the cornerstone, the rock foundation. 1 Peter 2, 6, Romans 9, 33, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, and 10, 4. All of these are instances where the rock is, is, is Jesus. So according to Jesus in verse 24, building your house on the rock means not only listening to God's word, but out of gratitude for salvation received and because of a changed heart, putting his commands into practice. So the wise person listens to God and trusts in his word, does his word, builds his life on his word, even when it is hard, right? Even when we're scared to do it, we build our life on the rock, on Jesus and his word. He makes God's word his foundation for everything, okay? Not only personal ethics, but everything, our family life, our community life that we share with our neighbors, education, work, the use of our possessions and time, government, everything is built on the foundation of the rock. There is no part of our lives that should not or or even cannot be built on the rock of Jesus and his word. No part of our lives whatsoever. The foolish person hears God's word, but trusting in himself shuts his eyes to the future and refuses to follow and obey. He or she is a hearer, but not a doer. He or she follows only the promptings of his or own sinful heart. And then the storm comes. 
right? The day of testing arrives. And it comes for both houses. No one will escape the storm. Down comes the rain, sheet after sheet after sheet, buckets of rain is falling. The flood starts, the water rises, the wind gusts and blows and howls. And you know what? There's nothing you can do to stop it. There's nothing you can do. We like to be in control, right? We like to control our surroundings, but there's no controlling the storm. Imagine an intense summer thunderstorm, and you're in a dry riverbed, and suddenly it's not dry anymore. It's actually becoming like a river, first like a little ditch, just a little bit of water, then a stream as the rain continues, and then a torrent of water, deep, swift, furious, threatening the walls and the entire structure of your house. And the winds grow stronger and stronger and stronger and pounds against the room and pounds against the walls and pounds against your house. So, my friends, for every hearer of the gospel and for every person, this test, this storm is coming for each one of us without a doubt. Now, it comes to our lives in many different ways. It comes through trials. Think of Job and Joseph and the trials that they went through. It comes through temptation. Think Joseph again and Peter who were tempted. Think of sadness and death and then the ultimate test at death is judgment day. And this will not be prevented by anyone or anything. And often it comes on us suddenly without any warning. But what happens to the houses? The wise man's house does not fall. The text says the rain fell and the floods came, the wind blew and beat, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The house wasn't necessarily stronger, but the strength came from the foundation, what it was built on. On the other hand, the Bible says great was the fall of the fool's house. It didn't take much effort for this house to be swept away with the sand and the loose gravel that it was built on. Great was the fall of it. In other words, its destruction was complete. There was nothing left of the foolish house. So the wise man will never be put to shame. Even on the great day of judgment, for him, it will be a day of triumph over the storm. And the warning of the foolish man's destruction, friends, that's God's grace to us right now. This warning of us, of what will happen if we fail to build our lives on and trust our eternal fate to Jesus Christ and his word. So I'm wrapping up. It's, uh, well, almost getting there soon. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Uh, In verse 28 through 29, this is huge. In verse 28, we now see the reaction of the crowds to Jesus' sermon on the mount. After Jesus spoke, the people were awed. They were astonished. It says they were amazed. They were dumbfounded. So I like, don't usually like it, but the Amplified New Testament translates it like this. They were astonished and overwhelmed and bewildered 
with wonder. This is Jesus dropping the mic on steroids, right? They were, they didn't know what to think. The literal meaning of this Greek expression is, was struck out of themselves. They almost, they were just blindsided. And the tense of the verb here suggests that this wasn't a momentary experience, uh, but that it lasted a long time. This bewilderment at Jesus' words stuck with them. The idea from verse 29 where it says, For he was teaching them carries the thought that the crowd's astonishment was not just from this particular thing he was saying, not just from this one sermon, but everything he had been teaching them in Galilee left this response with them. And so often it's Jesus' miracles that invokes people's astonishment, right? We can, we can, think, we can uh, imagine that pretty clear. When we see, when, if, if we saw Jesus' miracles, we'd be pretty awed by that. We'd be pretty astonished. But here, Matthew used the same verb where he talks about the miracles to talk about Jesus' teaching. They were just as astonished at his teaching as they were in his miracles. In both his teaching and his miracles, it is his authority that is impressing his hearers. They knew that he spoke with authority. Now, for Matthew to compare Jesus' authority above and against the scribes, that's a huge deal. That's a bold claim for his hearers because the scribes were the authorized teachers of the law because of their training in office. So they were bona fide, right? They were the bona fide teachers. It was the scribes that held the so-and-so distinguished chair of systematic Jewish theology, right? They were the teachers who had authority. Their opinions and conclusions about the law were expected to be accepted as a legal ruling. They were like the religious Supreme Court of the day, right? Say whatever they want. I mean, regardless of how dumb and ridiculous... And, oh, yeah, we have to listen to them. They're the authority, right? That's what the scribes were like. And it's against these very same scribes that Jesus comes to Jerusalem to debate. And as we see in chapter 23, he not only debates them, but he pronounces scathing indictment and woes against them. So we're seeing, at least to the hearers of his sermon, the Super Bowl battle of authority figures. On one side... We have the formally educated and trained, the established guardians of legal traditions. And on the other side, an upstart, itinerant, self-educated carpenter turned Galilean preacher. But the crowds were sensing an added dimension. There was more to Jesus' teaching than the scribes. There was something different about his teaching. Where the scribes base their rulings on the tradition of earlier interpreters of the law, Jesus has in his teaching set himself up as an authority over the scribes' tradition. Not on the basis of his training or anything like that, but of his own confident assertion that I tell you. That's what Jesus' authority was based on. I tell you. In addition to how he was to teaching was what he was teaching. And this is big. Not only was how he was teaching incredible, but he taught that he is the proper and right object of the people's allegiance and of their worship. 
and the one who controlled their destiny, as in verse 26, where he says, the one that who, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So he's telling them that their very eternal destiny is controlled by him and what he says and the words that comes out of his mouth. So the crowd's astonishment was completely understandable, right? Not only was it what he was saying, but it was also how he was saying it. W.D. Davies says, The Sermon on the Mount compels us in the first place to ask who he is who utters these words. Okay, now, now I'm getting close to, to being done now. Um, the fact that Jesus and his word is the only sure foundation and carries with it ultimate authority has far-reaching implications for our entire life. Things like, apart from God and his word as our ultimate foundation, can you even justify knowing anything? Can your foundation justify anything being objectively right and wrong? Can your foundation justify logic? Can your foundation justify tomorrow being like today, the uniformity of nature? Again, these are details that we don't have time to get into today, but the Bible's argument is absolutely no. You cannot justify these things. And that apart from Jesus Christ, all other foundations for anything is sinking sand. Okay, so most of you that know me know that I probably can't preach on this scripture without quoting Dr. Greg Bonson. So I'm going to leave with a couple of uh, paragraphs from him, and, uh, and then we'll close. So he has this to say about God's word as ultimate authority. Men should notice that when Jesus taught, he taught with self-attesting authority and not as one whose opinions had to be backed with the authority of other considerations or other persons. In other words, not like the scribes. Matthew seven twenty nine. Thus, no man has the prerogative to call the word of Christ into question. If a man will not receive and heed the words of Christ, then not only is he a fool who builds his life upon the destructive sand, Matthew seven twenty six through 27, but he shall be judged by these, those very same authoritative words, John twelve forty eight through 50. God's word has supreme authority. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Isaiah 45, 9. Continuing to quote Dr. Bonson, the word of the Lord is self-attestingly true and authoritative. Okay, listen, this is very important. It is the criterion we must use in judging all other words. Thus, God's word is unassailable. It must be the rock bottom foundation of our thinking and living. It is our presuppositional starting point. All our reasoning must be subordinated to God's word, for no man is in a position to reply against it, Romans 9.20. And any who contend with God will end up having to answer, Job 40.1-5. It, it must not be the changing opinion of men, but the self-attesting, authoritative, ultimately voracious word from God that has the preeminence in our thoughts, for canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Job 40, chapter 40, verse 9. 
Dr. Greg Bonson in his book, Always Ready. So friend, in closing, what, what, I want, what I want to ask you, I want you to ask yourself, what kind of builder are you? If you're a Christian, if you claim Christ, you must submit to God's word in every and all areas of your life. And if you do, you will be a wise person, safe from the storms of this world and the world to come. I want you to remember there's no higher authority than Jesus himself. There's no place we can go to prove the words of Jesus. His words prove themselves. If you have not built your life on his word, if you have not believed in him and repented of your sin, you will face the same destruction as the fool's house. Let me urge you to turn to Christ and live and submit to our great king, who willingly sacrificed his life to save sinners like you and like me. Amen.